comedy for all the films they said for my daughter Kayla, who was burned on Shavuos, which will be a year in June. She went to the clinic the last time. She goes every two months now. And the doctor said, when he took off the bodysuit, because they, they check her every time, she wears a bodysuit all the time, that if she looked as good as she looked this visit, when we go back in July, which I'm going to try to push to June, um, she won't have to wear the bodysuit anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Skin started pink. And you touch it, it's white now. It was always red. And you know, from the shadow. I want to thank everybody for all the support. <laughs> no, that, that's good news. Okay, it would be. It was one year ago. It will be a year on the voice in June. Aaron, 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 Shabbos, Aaron, Shavuos. Everyone should have a report like she did. Okay. The main part of Pesach is to make sure we get rid of the Chomets. And there are two things we do to get rid of the Chomets. One thing is we check and remove the Chomets from our house. The other thing is that we sell any remaining Chomets. We have closets of bread or anything, or whiskey or vodka, which is Chomets, beer. So we sell those closets. We sell those parts of the house which uh, possess it. And uh, I don't know if we have it over here, but there are papers which you sign and you write what you are going to sell. You give it to the rabbi. Which rabbi? I don't know. You could give it to the yeshiva or uh, whoever, or Rebbet and Klar or whoever. Huh? Right. Some of you have the little pamphlets, so you could uh, use that. If someone doesn't have it, you could pick it up in the yeshiva. Uh, that's one half of Pesach, is to get rid of the chametz. And that usually begins way before Pesach. This is the season where women are busy scrubbing and cleaning um, all the chametz of the house. And for women to come to class to learn Torah, that's called Mesir HaSnefesh nowadays. Okay. <laughs> They need the break. <laughs> need a break. It's an escape, maybe. Okay. <laughs> the second half of Pesach is to have matzah. And there are different types of matzah. But the one that we make sure to use at least for the night of the Seder is called Shmura matzah. Shmura matzah are the round matzahs, hand-baked matzahs, as opposed to the machine square ones. And uh, we should make every attempt, at least for the night of the Seder, and there are two Sodom, <coughs> to have uh, the matzah, the shmura matzah. Shmura matzah is not as tasty as the machine matzah, and it's not as cheap as the machine matzah. It's very expensive, but it's worth having it, at least for the Sodom. We have it for the whole Pesach, but at least for the Seder we should have it. Okay, then there's a third part of Pesach, which I didn't mention. We mentioned Chomets and Matzah, and the rest of the Seder, but there's something else that I left out. I left out the Kolben Pesach, the lamb. We're planning to have, for Mitzvah this year, a sacrifice called Kolben Pesach, sacrifice of Passover, which is brought on the day before Passover, and then we roast the meat, the meat of the sacrifice, and we eat it on the first night of Passover in Jerusalem. 
So uh, that should be in our agenda. And not only do we have to get the matzo, we'll have to get the lambs also. What? Well, yeah, we got a free ticket for that. Don't worry about that. It's all been, it's already been arranged. Okay. Now maybe towards the end of the class, if you have any questions on some of the laws or customs of Passover, and you could ask it, and uh, maybe we'll talk a little bit about some of those things. I was watching a movie with I teach a class on Sunday in the synagogue. I was watching a movie. Um, they were making shmurah matzah. I don't know what you them, but they make it by hand. Right. They actually do it. They were rolling it by hand. Right. That's the matzah we eat. Yeah. Right. So it's never it's, it's never made in an automatic machine, like the other matzah. Right. That's right. Okay. Now we're going to discuss uh, the inner significance of Pesach, Passover, how it applies to our lives. Let's begin with a question. God had told Abraham that his descendants would be enslaved in a foreign land, and then they would leave the foreign land with much riches and they will go to the land of Israel that's what God had told Abraham when God said that he gave a certain amount of years how long it would take it was specific he said it's going to take 400 years <coughs> there's going to be a period of 400 years at the end of these 400 years we're leaving Egypt okay now comes the night of Egypt 400 years later and the Torah says that God took us out of Egypt with a powerful hand with the, with the strength of his hand that's how he took us out of Egypt and uh, the inner significance of that is when God took us out with a powerful hand, why does he need a powerful hand to take us out of Egypt? At that point in heaven, in the heavenly court, there was a case against the Jewish people. And the case was that the Jews are similar to their neighbors, to the Egyptians. The Egyptians worship idols and so do the Jews. Many of the Jews worshiped idols. So why should the Jews be saved and uh, leave Egypt and then they were saved from the splitting of the sea? Why should all these things take place? So Hashem had to use a strong hand to overcome the judgment in the heavenly court. Because if, it's as if, if God would have a fair trial, God might say, you belong in Egypt, you shouldn't leave Egypt. So God has to use the powerful hand to overcome the midas hadin, the attribute of justice. And that way we left Egypt and God saved us at the sea when the sea split and so on. Okay, so when, when the Torah says that God used a strong hand, it doesn't mean a strong hand against the Egyptians. God doesn't have to use a strong hand against the Egyptians. All it takes is a pinky of God, and not even that, to get rid of the Egyptians. That wasn't the problem. The problem was, what is taking place in the heavenly court? And in order to overcome that, God had to use a strong hand. 
Now the question is, didn't God tell Abraham that the Jews would be in Egypt for 400 years? Now what happens after the 400 years? We were to expect that there's an automatic process which takes place by itself. The Jews just leave Egypt by itself. There's no need for God to intervene, actively intervene and take them out. It's just they have a sentence, the sentence is over, they leave. Someone has a 10-year sentence in jail. What happens after the 10 years? You need a special order to release him? You need a special court order to take him out? You just needed the original order that he should be in prison for 10 years. But when the 10 years are over, you leave the prison automatically without any special procedure. Same thing with the Jewish people. They had a sentence to be imprisoned for 400 years. What happens after 400 years? We're to expect that they would just leave Egypt, period. But that's not what the Torah says. The Torah says there was a need to have a special godly intervention to take them out of Egypt. Otherwise, they would stay there. The <coughs> question is why? Why would they stay there anyway if God had said you're to be there for 400 years? That's one question. Another question is, when we celebrate Passover, we're celebrating the festival of redemption, of freedom. That's what we're celebrating. The chair is waiting for you for the last two, three weeks. We're celebrating the festival of freedom. That's what Passover is. But what freedom are we talking about? We're now in exile, and we've been in exile for almost 2,000 years. Part of our exile was in the death camps of Germany, and uh, in the time of the Inquisition in Spain, and so on and so forth. How do they celebrate Passover in the darkness of, of exile? What Passover is that? Now, when we celebrate Passover, we're not celebrating an historical date. We're not celebrating something which happened in the past, 3,000 years ago. When we celebrate Passover, we have to celebrate our own personal freedom. That's our celebration. And that's one of the statements we make during the Seder, it's in the Haggadah. We make a statement, the person is obligated to see himself, to show himself, as if he personally left the bondage of Egypt and attained freedom. And this, incidentally, is probably the most difficult commandment to fulfill on the night of Passover. What's so difficult on Passover? What's so difficult to say? I'm not speaking about all the cleaning before Passover. That's a different department. The Passover itself, okay, what happens? You have to drink four cups of wine. No big deal. Is that a problem? You anyway take a grape juice, right? So what's the problem? What's the other problem? The matzah? Big matzahs, okay. You have to break your teeth a little bit? Okay, good. What's more difficult is the mohar. The mohar is, uh, what's the mohar? The bitter herbs. Okay, the horseradish. That's, that, that gets a little bit more difficult. But most people nowadays use mostly Roman lettuce instead of horseradish, which is, which is okay, which is perfectly okay. But by the way, it has to be thoroughly cleaned. Roman lettuce is usually infested with bugs. 
and they have to be thought there's old procedure to clean it and late recently they have special uh, roman lettuce which was already checked by a company by a certain process it's worth buying those but then make sure to check it again anyway because even if you buy them they're, they're, you could still find bugs there so they have to be thoroughly checked the roman lettuce isn't really bitter right yeah, it's tasty, right? You even enjoy it, right? We usually try to take a little bit, uh, a little bit bitter herbs also, together with that. That makes a little bit uh, the real thing, the real thing right? Right, right. Uh, that's usually how how we celebrate Passover. But Roman lettuce is okay. It's perfectly okay. You could use that. Okay, so so that's not so difficult either. What's the most difficult part of Passover, of the night of the Seder? The most difficult part is the obligation we have to feel as if we ourselves are attaining freedom and leaving Egypt. And we can't play games. It can't be, you know, let's just imagine, let's watch a video, you can't watch a video on Yontem, but let's just imagine that we're leaving Egypt. It can't be superficial. It has to be a real, legitimate, authentic feeling that we're actually leaving Egypt. We're attaining freedom. How can we do that? How can we do that during the darkness of exile before Mashiach comes. To make the question stronger, freedom of Passover was achieved because God took us out of Egypt. <coughs> and we have a certain premise about God, that God is infinite, God is eternal. If that's the case, God himself is infinite and eternal, so his activities, his actions, also have to be eternal. So when God gives us the Torah on Mount Sinai, that's an eternal act. That's forever. We have the Torah eternally. God will never take it away from us. When God shows us as the chosen nation, that's eternal. That doesn't change. When God gave us the mitzvahs, the commandments, that's eternal. That's never going to change. Mitzvahs will always be there. But when we left Egypt, that was a godly act. We left Egypt. Is that eternal? Is our freedom eternal or is it temporary? It appears to be temporary. We attained freedom. We were exiled again afterwards. So if we were exiled eventually, then what kind of Passover are we celebrating? Where's the freedom? Okay. What's on your mind? Oh, okay. I was agreeing. Oh, I usually don't get that over here. <laughs> okay, I'm glad you came this week. Keep on coming. Okay. So how many questions do we have so far? Two. Two questions. Okay. Am I right? 2.5. Um. Second question is two parts. The first question was, why did we need a powerful hand? To take us out, we were right. supposed to just leave automatic. Next question. How do we celebrate Passover even if we're still in exile? Okay. Okay. And the other part of that is, since God is eternal, his activities are eternal, so if he gives us freedom, we're to expect this to be a permanent freedom. And it doesn't appear to be a permanent one. Now, at the night of the Seder, we say the Haggadah. And, by the way, women also say the Haggadah. 
maybe not all of it, but at least parts of it they have to say. Because one of the commandments at the night of Passover is to relate the story of the Exodus. And that obligation is until what time of the night of Passover? Huh? I knew you would say that. But no, it's the whole night. Okay? We have to finish eating the Afikoiman. We finish the meal before midnight. True. That's one mitzvah. That's one commandment. The other commandment is to relate the story of the Exodus. That continues the whole night. That doesn't stop. And that's why one of the first parts of the Haggadah we mention a story of sages who spent the whole night relating the story of Egypt. Not just the story, the laws, the concepts, and so on. So uh, the problem is that women are usually very tired. Men are also tired. And after the meal, after four <coughs> cups of wine, so there's no, there's a, it's very hard to keep. But if you drink grape juice anyway, you have no excuse. <laughs> so you can keep on going the whole night speaking about the Exodus. Okay. Now, if you'll notice in the Haggadah, the beginning of the Haggadah is more or less Manishtana. Manishtana are the four questions we ask. Why is the night of Passover different than all the nights of the year? And we continue to enumerate four differences between Passover and the rest of the year. After the four questions are asked, then we get to the answers. And the answers are very long. It begins with Avodim Ayin, we were slaves, and, 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 and it proceeds for quite a few pages. And by the way, you might as well this year focus on the four questions and make sure you get an answer to the four questions. Because the answers aren't so clear in what, what, what follows the four questions. So wherever you're going to spend the Seder, don't let them get away with it. Make sure you get an answer to the four questions. Otherwise, don't, sh don't serve your, uh, your chicken soup. Okay. Now there's a paragraph which precedes the Manishtana. There's a paragraph which precedes the Manishtana. It's a three-sentence paragraph which begins with the words Hey Lachma Anya in Hebrew. That's before the Manishtana. And in this paragraph, we say three things. Number one, we say this is the bread of affliction which our forefathers ate in the land of Egypt. That's the first sentence. Okay, question. The matzah we eat, when did the Jews eat it? Egypt or inside Egypt? When did they eat it? After they left Egypt. Right? And we say that afterwards in the Agadah clearly. They ate it because they had no time for it to rise when they left Egypt. Here we make a statement, again, this is before the Manishtana, the small paragraph. It says, this is the bread of affliction which our forefathers ate in the land of Egypt. That's not so. We ate it after we left Egypt. Okay, that's the first sentence. The second sentence says, maybe it's the third one. Uh, the next sentence says that... Um, we're extending an invitation for anyone who wants to join our Passover services, 
And if there are any needy, let them come and join us. Whoever needs, let them join on our Passover. That's the second sentence. Now, there's something very strange about it. In other words, it's an invitation. We're inviting the needy to join our Passover. So if someone knocks on your door on the night of Passover, you got to let him in. Otherwise, you're a liar. Because that's what you said. We say whoever needs, whoever needs could come join our Passover. That's what you said. That's what we all say. So if someone knocks on your door, you have to let him in to join the patent of the Seder. But there's something not fair about this. What's not fair is, after you're home with your family, then you start singing, I invite anyone to come. You did it on the wrong time. Back in the synagogue, you should have given a patch on the table and say, whoever needs, come join us. That's when you have to invite everyone, not in the Seder when you're comfortable and you're leaning, and then you're inviting people. That's not a nice thing to do. Okay, that was the second sentence. Third sentence. Third sentence we say, now we're here. In the year to come, we're going to um, be free. Now we're here, and by next year we'll be in Jerusalem. That's the third sentence. Okay, why are we saying this over here? Why are we discussing now we're here, we're going to be in Jerusalem? What does it have to do with the whole Passover? Say it at the end, at the end of the Seder, we actually say, Lishana Habab Yerushalayim. By next year we'll be in Jerusalem. That's at the end of the Seder, that's nice. But in the beginning of the Seder, why bother discussing now we're slaves? That's what we say, now we're slaves, next year we'll be free. Why are you discussing now we're slaves? This seems to be smacking in the face of what the whole Seder is all about. The whole Seder is to celebrate freedom. And before we even get to the Manishtana, we say, now we're slaves. And next year we'll be free. If we're slaves now, why are we celebrating Passover now? Let's wait for next year. Okay, those, those were the three sentences of this paragraph before Manishtana. And this year, please make sure to really focus on those three sentences. Okay, how many questions? Well, you're counting those three sentences. I would say <coughs> a total of six. Six questions. That's not kosher because you're only supposed to ask four questions. Yeah. Okay, so we asked two extra questions. And I didn't understand the third question anyway. I didn't get the question. So make it five. Okay. Why are you leaving? That's the sixth question. Well, actually, that's one of the four questions we asked on the Seder. Okay, and I mentioned before, make sure you get an answer to this question. But that's not my job. Okay. Unless you join my Seder. <laughs> now you should invite everybody. Oh, yeah. I'm inviting everybody. I'm inviting everybody. Just let's do We'll just have to take this. A light tap. A light tap. Okay. That's before Mashiach comes. When I mention roast meal, right, that's after Mashiach comes. Okay. When we have the Kom Pesach, the sacrifice Passover, then we have we roast the sacrifice. Nowadays we don't do that. No, until Mashiach comes, we don't do that. So we should be careful not to make a roast. Because we don't roast meat for the night of the Passover. No. Just the just the offering of the Passover offering. Right. Okay. Yeah, there is a piece of meat, a piece of uh, that we do roast, and we don't eat that that we put on the plate, mm -hmm. but not for consumption. Some people roast 
Yes, yes. Okay, let's continue. Let's begin with a story. A story about the author of the Shulchan Aruch. The Shulchan Aruch is the code of Jewish law written some 500 years ago by a rabbi called, what was his name? No, this is after the Rambam, Rav Yosef Karo. That was his name of the author of the Shulchan Aruch. No, he was in Italy, I don't think it was his plane, and then he went to Israel to Tzfas. Okay. Now, he was, he wrote many books. He wrote the Shulchan Aruch, and he wrote many, many books. He was an unusual scholar. He had a penetrating head, and he had this vast knowledge to write a Shulchan Aruch. There was a time when he was spent, this was late at night, he spent hours going through a difficult part of the Talmud. And he had a difficult, he had a question, and he tried to resolve it. He spent an hour, two hours, he spent like three hours trying to resolve the difficulty. After three hours of deep concentration, he finally found a solution to his problem. And he was happy, he was satisfied, and he went back home. On the way home, he passes by a small synagogue, and he sees, he hears, some scholar, you know, the regular scholar, young fellow, who's studying the very same subject that he was studying. And he hears the way the scholar is asking the very same question he had just asked. And he spent three hours figuring it out. And he hears the way the scholar asks the question, and right away he says, oh, this is the answer. And he gives the same answer which Rav Yosef Karo came up with after three hours. But this scholar did it in a matter of seconds. He just figured out the answer on the spot. And this wasn't an, a special scholar. This was just an, a regular, everyday scholar. And Rav Yosef Karo, who was the leader of the community, he went through a disappointment. He's a big scholar. He, he's writing, he's the author of so many books. He's uh, teaching law, Jewish law, Jewish Talmud. And he had so, so, so much difficulty to figure out something. And this is just a regular student. He figures it out on the spot. He felt terrible. Now, Rav Yosef Karim, one of his books, he discusses about a certain angel which appeared to him and told him different things. They had different discussions with the angel of Yosef Karim. The name of the book in Hebrew is Magid Mishalim. That's a, one of the books he wrote. It's a very interesting book. So the angel that appeared to him calmed him down. And he explained to him that if you wouldn't have spent those three hours figuring out this part of the Talmud, then that scholar, that young scholar, wouldn't have figured it out either. It took your hours of exertion to draw down this part of the Torah into the world. And once you brought it into the world, it became accessible for anyone. That's how he calmed him down. In other words, when we study Torah, we have a question, we have an answer, we're bringing something down into the world. Torah, which is in heaven, comes down into the world. So it takes someone uh, magnitude of the greatness of Reyes of Karo to bring such a deep concept into the world. Once it's here, 
It's accessible. Anyone can do it. So this is the, the, the principle of breakthrough. You have to break something through, then it's easy to follow. And this explains why Abraham, Abraham had how many tests? He had 10 tests. The 10th one was the most difficult one. The 10th one was the Akedah. Akedah, what was the Akedah? Binding of Yitzhak, right. He was supposed to sacrifice Yitzhak, and he was ready to do it. Last second, God told him not to do it. Okay. So there's a question which the Alter Rebbe asks, and it's a famous question which, which, are, which, is, uh, which many books ask about Abraham. There were many Jews, thousands of Jews, who did the very same thing. In our history, in our dark history, thousands of Jews were ready to sacri sacrifice their own lives. They actually sacrificed their own lives. And the lives of their families, all for the sake of God. So why is Abraham, this is considered a major test, the Akedah, and we, we continually mention this in our prayers as a merit for the Jewish people. And God writes this in the Torah that the schus, the merit of Abraham, lasts for, for thousands of years. What was so special about Abraham? Everyone does the same thing. The Jews in history always did that. So there are many answers to this. One of the answers is that Abraham was the breakthrough. He was the first one that did it. And the first one is the most difficult one. He broke through, he brought this concept into the world that you're ready to die, even your family, for the sake of God. So he broke this through into the world, then we could emulate him. But it's only emulating. The one who broke it through, the most difficult, that's Abraham. And this follows a rule of the Talmud, which states, Kol has kashes, all beginnings are difficult. To begin something, that's the difficulty. Now, getting back to Egypt, we'll have questions a little bit later. Getting, getting back to Egypt. The Jews were Egypt, they were enslaved, and God took them out of Egypt. When he took them out of Egypt, we have the word Geula. Geula means redemption. There was a redemption of the Jewish people. Now, Geula, the redemption of the Jewish people, was a breakthrough. It was a break breakthrough which happened in Egypt, when God took us out of Egypt. And once we have that breakthrough, that opened up the doors, that opened up the path that there could be subsequent redemptions, gulas. And that's what the celebration of Passover is. We're celebrating the beginning, the origin, the breakthrough of redemption. Now, we see in our history and we mentioned this in the Haggadah also, that in every generation, they stand up against
And unfortunately, history has proven that also. And as a side note in parentheses, not concerning our discussion, it used to be that when Arab terrorists would do something bad to Jews, we would point a finger and say, yes, they're anti-Semites. They hate the Jews. And that's what they said. They hate the Jews. Nowadays, we have a new name. When terrorists do something, they love Jews. They just hate the peace process. That's the new name we have. They're, they love Jews. You know, no problem with Jews. It's just a peace process they're against. Okay, but in the Haggadah, we say differently. In the Haggadah, we say that in every generation, they try to destroy us, including in our generation. And they say it explicitly. And even Agafati Machshima, he also has in his, uh, in his papers and his goal, and he keeps on saying it as jihad to destroy the Jewish people. And it's unfortunate that Jews don't believe what he's saying. He says it clearly, and we don't believe what he's saying. Just like some Jews didn't believe what Hitler and Machshima was saying, some Jews don't believe what Arafat says, and he practices what he does. Okay, that was a side note. Back to our discussion. In every generation, they try to destroy us. Why is it that way? Why do they try to destroy us in every generation? Now, the Jewish people are compared in the Midrash to a sheep surrounded by, surrounded by? Wolves. 70 wolves. Okay. Now, according to the rules of nature, when you have 70 wolves surrounding a sheep, the sheep can't survive, especially when they're hungry. Okay, that is the status, the nature of the Jewish people. We are the sheep, and the nations of the world are surrounding us and trying to consume us. What did I just read that um, uh, some rabbi, some rabbi went to um, to a high government official. I don't know if it was in England or in America. It was like 30 years ago. And was complaining about anti-Semitism. So this government official said, you know, anti-Semitism is something which is not just the Germans. Many nations have anti-Semitism. The difference is that the Germans made it a government policy. But here in America, there's no such government policy. Government policy is freedom and no religious persecution. But that doesn't mean that the people in the government or other people don't hate Jews. So we are surrounded by wolves which try to eat us up in one way or the other. Now we have this Farrakhan making this million-man march, and what does he speak about? And what, what, is, what do his people speak about? All the anti-Semitism. And they're still respected, and people uh, on television, either they always let him talk and all that. What would happen if someone would speak against blacks? Someone would have a million march, a million men march against blacks. You know what would happen? The whole, the whole United States would shake up. The president would keep on speaking against it. But if it's against Jews, that's acceptable. That's all right. You can speak against Jews. And Farrakhan is still a great person in the newspaper, in the media. So we are a sheep surrounded by 70 wolves. That's our status. And this began in Egypt. In Egypt, we were a sheep, and the nation, the Egyptian government, they swallowed us. They made us into slaves. That's why we say in the Haggadah that if God would not take us out of Egypt, what would happen? We would still be slaves up to this day. 
because that is our nature. We have 70 walls surrounding a single sheep. So what happened in Egypt was God introduced a new concept, a new concept called Geula, redemption. Redemption of the Jewish people, which is not the same as the redemption of any other nation. No other nation went through the suffering of the Jewish people and the redemption of the Jewish people. There were other nations who were slaves. But when they were freed, they remained slaves. Their mentality remains a slave mentality. They didn't really attain freedom. But such radical first being enslaved for hundreds of years and then attaining complete freedom, that is the redemption of Passover. That's the redemption from Egypt. And God introduced this new concept that even though we're the single sheep surrounded by wolves, we have the power of redemption. So God opened up the path, he opened up the door, he brought it into the world, and once it's brought into the world, what's next? Then it's available, it's accessible. Any subsequent redemption draws its power from the exodus of Egypt. Just as Rabbi Yosef Karo, he brought down this thing into the world, then it's accessible. God took us out of Egypt, he brought into the world the redemption of the Jewish people, and now its ends exists. And even when Mashiach, who's going to come very soon, his redemption draws its energy from Egypt. Because that's when Gula was introduced into the world. And that's why we also mentioned in Haggadah that even after Mashiach comes, and there are going to be great wonders when Mashiach comes, greater miracles that, that took place then took place when we left Egypt. Will we celebrate Passover after Mashiach comes? Won't, won't the, the Exodus be considered lighting a match in broad daylight? In broad daylight when it's 100 degrees in the summer, you light a match outside, do you see anything there? Do you see the flame? The Exodus of Egypt compared to the final redemption of Mashiach is a small match compared to this huge energy of the sun. So why, why will we celebrate Passover after Mashiach comes? The answer is, Passover is the energy, it's the strength. It's the strength of redemption. And the redemption of Mashiach, which is about to take place, the energy for that comes from Passover. Passover is the breakthrough. It brings it into the world. And everything that happens afterwards is a continuation of the Exodus. And in that sense, we can say that leaving Egypt, Passover, is not a festival which takes place at one point of the year and then it's over. And we actually say this, it's stated at the end of our Haggadah. In certain editions, certain versions of Haggadah, at the end it says, Chasal Seder Pesach. We finish with the order of Pesach. That's what it says in some Haggadahs. In our Haggadah, it doesn't say that. Haggadah written by the Alter Rebbe. Because the Alter Rebbe says, Passover never finishes. It's a whole year. Why? Because we leave Egypt each and every day. And this is one of the mitzvahs we have to remember the Exodus every day of the year. Because leaving Egypt is a continuous process. It's a process of introducing redemption and more redemption into the Jewish people and into the world. 
Now, what is this redemption? The redemption of leaving Egypt wasn't a political freedom. The motive of Moses and the Jewish people was not to achieve political freedom. When God took us out of Egypt, God told Moses to approach Paro, King Paro, and tell him what? What was the famous statement that he said? Okay, that's, that's the mistake that everyone makes. You fell into my trap. That's the mistake everyone makes. And everyone has those signs, let my people go. That's a mistake. It doesn't say that. It says, let my people go so that they should serve me. They should worship me. That's the part they left out. So it's not let my people go out of Egypt. Right. It's let my people go via Duni and they should serve me. This wasn't a political exodus, a political freedom. That's not what we, we were, that wasn't our, our objective. Our objective was to attain religious freedom. And that's what Moses told Pharaoh time and again. And God told him to say that. Let my people go so they should worship me. But that's what Passover is all about. Pharaoh wanted the people to worship him. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. And when did we worship God? We began worshiping God on Mount Sinai when God gave us the Torah. And God says in the very first words of the Ten Commandments, I am your God which took you out of Egypt. Because taking you out of Egypt is only for the purpose of receiving the Torah. And that's the freedom that we achieved on Passover. Our connection to the Torah, our connection to God, and that freedom which we achieved had physical expression. We achieved spiritual freedom, then we achieved physical freedom. Because one brings the other. And that's why whenever we strengthen, we reinforce our connection to God, we are in the process of leaving Egypt. It's not a one-time process, it's a continuous process. And that's why the first time we left Egypt, we say this in the Haggadah, we say that God, the king of all kings, revealed himself and took us out of Egypt. It wasn't through an angel, it was God himself. It wasn't through a messenger, it was God himself. What's wrong with a messenger? What's wrong with an angel? Why didn't God take us out of Egypt with using a messenger, using an angel? An angel could do the job. The answer is an angel couldn't do the job because the angel could only take us out of Egypt physically. But that's not leaving Egypt. Leaving Egypt means a connection to God. So God revealed of himself to us and that established, that created our connection to God. Once that connection was created, spiritually we left Egypt, so then physically we could leave Egypt. And the ultimate was to receive the Torah on Mount Sinai. So leaving Egypt is not a one-time procedure. It's a long, drawn procedure which began then. And the final ultimate will take place when Mashiach comes very soon. That's when leaving Egypt will reach its ultimate goal. But up to this point, we're in the process. We're in the middle of everything. Okay, so that answers all the questions. Any questions now? What were the questions? Let's remember the questions. Don't ask me. I don't understand. I don't know the questions. Well, the sentence is. Okay, one question. Let's go back to the. What was the first question? 
Not the first of the four questions. No, no. The first no. real question. Why did it need one second? One second. Let's answer the, the my question. Don't get to your question. Why did it need the strength of God's hand? Why? That was the first question. That was, first, was that answer? Official. I don't. That was an answer. Okay. The answer to that is that when we were in Egypt and we left Egypt for redemption, we did not achieve yet the ultimate redemption. And in God's plan, in his original plan, let's call it, which he had told Abraham that they would be slaves for 400 years, they would leave Egypt, the original goal was that there should be a complete final redemption at that point. And there wasn't. The Jews weren't ready for it yet. So therefore, when it came time to leave Egypt, it was a whole big court case. The court case was saying, yes, you're supposed to leave Egypt, but why is that going to help you if you didn't achieve complete redemption? So even if they would physically leave Egypt, they would revert back to the bondage of Egypt because the goal had not, be achieved, had not been achieved. So therefore, there was a need for God to say, even though the goal wasn't completed yet, but we have to take them out of Egypt anyway at this point. Okay? Next question? Great. While we're still on the next one. Okay. Did we answer that? What we're celebrating is the energy of redemption and the procedure. It began. It began a whole thing of, of, of redemption. The final redemption will take us when Mashiach comes. But we're celebrating now redemption, and the celebration itself brings us close to the redemption. The feeling of freedom that we have on Passover, that itself is part of bringing us, of leaving Egypt. So it began then, it continues every year, and the ultimate is when Mashiach comes. And that's why in the first paragraph, before Manishtana, we mention that this is the bread of affliction that our forefathers ate in Egypt. What we're trying to set is get the record straight. We want to get the facts straight. We're celebrating freedom on the night of Passover. It's not the ultimate yet. So if it's not the ultimate, we're going to eat matzah. Right, matzah is leaving Egypt. But in a certain sense, we're still in Egypt because we haven't achieved the full ultimate redemption yet. So we should know the fact we're still in Egypt. And we're going to invite poor people. How could there be poor people? When we left Egypt, we left rich. And if God gave us the riches, it should be eternal. <laughs> so... The reason we invite people, of course we should invite people before we go home. But when we start to say that we say, listen, there are needy people around. We have not achieved the ultimate yet. If that's the case, why are we celebrating Passover? Because now we're here in the year to come, by the year to come, we'll be in Jerusalem. Now we're slaves, but we're going to be free. Because Passover began the redemption process. It gave the energy for that. So we are celebrating now the fact that we have the power of redemption. We have it within ourselves. We just have to reveal it. We have the connection to God. That have we achieved. We have to expose it in our daily lives. Are we trying to make a breakthrough then every year, bringing it down, the redemption right, down to us? Right, right. Is that why we're celebrating Right, it? right. To make that breakthrough. Right. We're talking about that right. But not just on Passover, mostly on Passover. Mm -hmm. It's every day of the year we have to have that breakthrough. And every day we're getting closer to that. Every day we're leaving Egypt. 
It's not just that we left Egypt once. Every day we have to leave Egypt more and more. Leaving the impurity of Egypt, the bondage of Egypt, and connect ourselves more and more with God. Does that mean that the reactionary for the redemption is even later on Pesach than any other Yes, yes. On the month of Nisan, which we're now, and especially in Pesach. Now, let's get to your question. Oh, just going back, so when you said that the greatness of Adhan, you know, why he was, you know, he's his son, why was like the greatest, the greatest person, you know, that had lived for whatever time, when you said, spoke about the breakthroughs. Okay, that's a valid point. Okay, any questions? No questions? No? I, I just want to get this relationship between Hashem and his heavenly court. What's going on up there? This is Hashem. <laughs> it's know? Hashem. He's really in charge. He's in charge. What's going on? He's giving, you know, power to these heavenly courts to make decisions. Well, there are, no, not decisions. And then he goes and he overrides. It's fine. I'm going to take him out with a strong hand. He's like talking to himself or something. What's, what's happening up there? Well, that, that's a good question. That's the famous uh, Lester question. <laughs> Let's uh, look at it from a human perspective. Let's do a we function. We function, uh, you have a child who misbehaved. And then the child comes and says, Mommy, could I have a candy? Mommy, could I have this? So you start thinking, one second, one second. Well, let, let's take it easy. What did you just do before? Didn't you just misbehave? Do you deserve this? So in the mind of the mother, then there's, a, there's a consideration, maybe you don't deserve this candy. But then the mother thinks, you know what? I love the child so much. And he's only a child after all. You know, what do you expect from him? Okay, take the candy, uncle. Okay, take the candy. So there's a certain commotion that was going inside the heart and the mind of the mother. What was going on is, you don't deserve it, I'm going to give it to you anyway. Sometimes the child behaves and there's no problem. Sure, here's the candy, you deserve it. Sometimes you don't deserve it, maybe I shouldn't give it to you, I'm going to give it to you anyway. And sometimes it's beneficial for the parents to tell that to the child. Tell the child, you should know, you can just keep it to yourself, you know, I'm going to give you the candy. Sometimes it's beneficial to say, listen, you don't deserve it. You know what you did before? You don't deserve it. I'm going to give it to you anyway. Okay? That's the heavenly court we're speaking about. There are times when we misbehave. We're the children of God. And sometimes God is going to give us a favor, and he might not even tell us about it. Sometimes he's going to tell us, he's going to say, listen, you guys don't deserve it. You know, there's a heavenly court case. Court case means that the judgment of God says that you don't deserve it. But I'm going to override your actions, the judgment, and I'm going to give you clemency. Okay? That's the heavenly court we're talking about. Okay? There's another way of saying that we don't deserve it, and the attribute of justice says, no, you shouldn't do it. God's going to overlook that. Okay? 
No, that's a clear message. That's not a mixed message. The clear message is you have to tell the child is don't do means don't do. And if you do it, you do it. But now you could say, listen, here's a candy, here's a, here's a toy. You don't deserve them to give you anyway. Nothing wrong with that. If you feel it's beneficial for the child, do that. That's not a mixed message. If the child thinks that because you're giving it to him, that means it's not such a terrible sin, that's a mixed message. Then, then it's wrong to do that. But if you tell the child clearly what you did was 100% wrong, what I'm going to give you because I know you're going to start behaving better, that's, that's not a mixed message. That's a clear message. Huh? Okay. Well, that's, that's the job of the parent. The parent has to, uh, has to understand the child, understand what the child will understand, and act accordingly. If you feel the child will misunderstand, then don't give him the candy. Then you're right. If you if you feel that the child will understand, then you can afford to give the candy. What? Or if the child repented, that's right. Until the next time. <laughs> okay, well we're all children, we're all in the same boat. Okay, we do the same thing. Everything Kipper can do chuma. And what happens the rest of the year? <laughs> so we have to try to become better and better. That's our goal. No, that's incorrect. When we do tshuva, then we should be sure. We should be certain that God gives us clemency. Because that's what God says. You said that... The hardest mitzvah Passover is to um, feel as if we went through the we were slaves in Egypt. And, um, how, how would you recommend that we do that at the Seder table? How do you do that? Oh, that's very difficult. That's very difficult. One step before you could, I think, is that you could say healing just comes naturally. No, no, not in this case. Not in this case. No. Because you specifically said don't pretend. That's right. In this case, you have to actually feel it. How do you do that? The kids are running around. You're trying to serve and. Well, it's like this. Um, the best thing is after you put your children to sleep, start then. That's number one. Number two, the best opportunity of educating a child is on the night of the Seder. That's when the hearts are open, the minds are open, and the doors are open. That's one of the reasons we open up the doors, because the heavenly doors are open, and inside the soul of the child is open. Every mate on the night of Passover to educate children, give the child all you've got <coughs> in all of religion, all of Judaism, all about Torah, all about God. This is the opportunity. So what you should do is spend some time talking to your child about Passover. Tell the child the Passover story. Make it colorful. You know, with Dam and Svadeya, the blood and the frogs and so on. Tell the child the story. Do some reading before to get to, to get clear of the story. But tell the child the story <laughs> and relive the, the story for the child at least. And when you do it to the child, there's a good chance it's going to go into you also. Okay, that's one of the tricks we do. One of the tricks teachers have when they want to get something, they tell to the students, and then they start, they want to give a certain feeling, then they get that feeling. You want to explain something? Certain concepts, they start understanding it also. 
Okay? That's the way it works with a child. You have to explain it to the child, then you get it also. And I might suggest, this is a little bit delicate, I don't know if I should say it, tape also, that part of the say, though, you should ask your husband that at least part of it, you, you bring out the chicken, you know, at least part of it you should do, and you should sit like a rich queen, relaxing, not the whole say, though, at least part of it, okay? We try to make sure that the children should sleep before the Seder, so they should be awake during the Seder. That, that, that's top priority, because the main focus of the Seder are the children. Yeah. Top priority is they should sleep, and whoever's going to sleep is going to get some prize or something, but they have to sleep. Make sure they sleep. Now the second Seder is easier than the first, because you get some more rest. For the adults it's easier. But uh, the main focus is the children, and uh, you have to get into the atmosphere, that's so. all. Do they make the matzah here? Do they what? Does the matzah make it here? New York. Where they make it? It's made in New York, I think. New York. In Detroit, the Chabad uh, put on a, a matzah factory at the Jewish Center. And we let the kids come in and actually yeah. the wine. Uh, yeah, they've done that. They do it here also. But it wasn't yeah. to prepare matzahs for the Passover. No, the kids went home yeah. with the issues to learn. Okay, everyone should make sure to sell their comments. Um, who should you? First or something? I don't know. Second? Second. Well, when is Passover? Which day? Third. Third. So. Okay, yes, it should be done uh, April 1 or April <coughs> 2. April two, 2, you could also two. do it, yes. You didn't do it April 2, even April 3, you could do it if it's early in the morning. No, before that. Yes, around 10. Okay, and uh, you should get your hands on certain pamphlets more. You should know the details of the laws. They have it in short. It's also in the Chai today. Uh, today they have some of it in different magazines. You could look up the laws to know what to do. I have to sign my husband's name for it, which is not right. Why is it yeah, but I think they have orders. I just have a quick question about the law. We have a dog. So we experienced that we had to like order dogs to help the cats so we could take them to the cats to help feed them. 
and um, one family member was like very disturbed by this and decided like what would be her mission to go out and find this kosher for Catholic doctor which doesn't exist. And when she went to ask for it, all these people at the store said, what are you talking about? You don't have to give it to the dog during the week of Passover. You just feed the dog outside or you know, something like that. This didn't seem like it made sense to me because you have to sell your comments and if you can't benefit from comments in any way, how can you feed your dog on K-Stop? On the other hand, it's a big, big expense to send a dog out for eight days. Can the dog use regular rules? No. Much so the dog doesn't like? Well, our cats, we used to do that, but the dog has like a sensitive stomach. Are you sure that you have to board the dog? That's what I'm asking. No, I never I never uh, thought of such a question. The dry stuff? Regular comments? She probably likes to And we can't do that because of our diet. And everyone said that. There's um, Anne Lincoln, this is Marilyn Hill, Cassie, and this is Wife, called my sister about it, and Pat Lee, she wanted to get this Cassie, but she's at the door. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is Wife, I'm a Queen Arthur, and she also knows, and she's really in depth now. Do you girls use a certain lipstick too? There is a company that has basically the. I remember when I went to places at night. It's in the Woman Cream's book in the back. It says all the names. And what have the girls got for the child needs to get a biotic? I don't know about that. Well, they have a list of medications which are kosher for Passover. Yeah. 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 She just said Schwalter's garage, they have the That's where I saw it. I was back here last week. I knew that there was something I saw. Avon has a... No. Hashem himself, Hashem himself was the one who, it says, I can't remember the word now, but it says, um, me and not an angel of death, uh, me and not an angel or seraph, whatever, passed over the houses, that the angel of death passed over. I'm very confused with that last matter, like whether it was Hashem or whether it was angel, he says that I myself did it, but at the same time it says the angel of death passed over the house and that we had to put the, that we had to put the sign on our door in order for the angel of death to differentiate between um, whose house is the good, who's the, I understand why you know, the sign and that as much as I can. I'm also confused, but the way I, the way I envision this